0: So, I mean, I guess we need like a title for this, don't we, JT? We, we need a title like something like From Vegas to the Bay because there's so much that links you and I together as radio colleagues, as friends, as guys who have shared microphones and studios and franchises from the city that I lived in to where they used to live to now where you live in Las Vegas. It's amazing all the little cobwebs that tie us together, man. How you doing?
1: I couldn't be better. Is this the pluse? Am I on the pluse? You are on the pluse. I love it. Uh, Everything's great. I was at your wedding. We've been friends for a very long time. I'm happy for all your success, and I'm really happy about what you're doing now because you, without any form of handcuffs, and you could get the handcuffs off, you're like Harry Houdini, but now on this platform, I think you are going to thrive at it, and I know you are because I watch your show all the time, and I'm proud to subscribe to it.
0: Well, thank you, man. I really, really appreciate that. I mean, do you even, can you even remember when we first met?
1: Well, I know, I believe it was, I remember when you were back in Indiana before you were getting into radio, and I helped with a little bit of that bridge. But if you asked me the first time ever, uh, I'd have to go back in the hot tub time machine. I might get that wrong.
0: You and I were introduced by Jen Violet.
1: Oh. Jan, the when, you were doing,
0: when you were doing middays at KNBR 1050, this is back like 1998, 1999, the very first time I ever walked into KNBR studios. Jen takes me, I meet Lee Hammer, I meet Tony Salvador. And then she takes me downstairs to 1050, where you were basically like the king of your own castle. You were just handed this radio station that was never really supposed to work. They were never trying to really promote it. They didn't want anyone stepping on like Gary Radnich and Tony Bruno. And I think Rush Limbaugh was still on on 680 in those days. And you were left to, to your own devices You did the most ridiculous radio show of all time. And then you'd you'd do like five more hours at night on Sports Fan Radio Network. You seriously were like the hardest working guy in radio. And and, in many ways, you still are, man.
1: Yeah, I appreciate that. I still have the T-shirt. I wish I had it for this. It was a picture of the Bay Bridge, and it said, the hardest working man on radio, eight hours a day. I did noon to three, and uh, then I did 9 to 2 a.m. Uh, don't try that, anybody. And I did it the same day, and that's just when I got up and took my first deal to syndicate up out of the Bay Area, moved up there, got hired by the Raiders in 98, and that's where it all really began for me. It began a little bit earlier than that at Sports Fan in Vegas, but my big break came through Tony Salvador, Bruce Allen at the time, who was in the news, uh, even on Today, and they brought me up to the Bay Area and said, hey, we want you to do your show here, and we're going to give you the Raiders pre- and post-game show which is arguably one of the big breaks I've ever had. And, you know, I loved it. I love working on, you know, what was great about 1050? The fans were clamoring for that because it's a huge market for the Niners. The Raiders always felt like they never got the proper attention and they haven't on radio. I'm Sure, we'll get to more of that later. And finally, Raider Nation thought, man, we have a, we have a station we can call our own. It was the first year of Gruden. They put up a billboard, as you remember, over the Bay Bridge. It came over Oakland into San Francisco, and it had Gruden. And they really backed it, and it was good people. Jen Violet and all the people I met behind the scenes there, some of them still in Bay Area Radio in one way or the other. So those were happy times.
0: So for a minute there, do you realize that that pre- and post-game show, it was you on the air, your board op and producer, was Sam Batesh and me. I was cutting audio. I was cutting Greg Papa highlights. I wasn't like a studio that was allowed in the studio yet even. I I was like a a gopher worker bee. And I gotta tell you, man, uh, one of the things I, I instantly realized about you was how great you treated everybody. Even though I was the most new to the radio station underling, you treated me like I was Rune Arledge. You helped and encouraged. And that's never, that's never left you, man. I mean, just a week ago, you're filling in for Jim Rome and who do you have on is I'm trying to start this whole new YouTube adventure. You reach out to me to be a guest and it's that little bit of support. Like, I don't mean to get all mushy with you, but I do want people to understand what an unbelievable critical role and a mentor you've been really in my career. And, and, And it's, it's been a special relationship. And I think that like, you don't hear an awful lot about mentors and protégés and people who have really helped people reach an important part of their career to now. I mean, you and I are, are, are equals in in so many ways. And there is no way I would even be traveling in the same lane as you. If you hadn't reached over with your hand and pulled me into it. And so I, I really, you know, you and I have talked about this personally a lot publicly, I just want to let everyone know how much you've meant to me in my career. It's 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 been amazing.
1: Well, that means a lot to me because that's who I am. You know, I'm JT on the radio, I'm John at home, I'm a dad. I have great kids, but you know in our in our industry, for some reason, people hate each other. They never met someone, they don't like him, they don't know him. They just you just connect with him for the radio. They don't agree with an opinion. Now social media, this, that. All of it. So, you know, the people that I've gotten to know in my life that mean a lot to me, like you and so many people up in San Francisco, uh, San Francisco has been a wild ride for me. And I'm happy you, you talked about those years because I was mentored. I was mentored by some of the best people in the history of radio. Tony Salvador was one of the biggest guys I've ever met as he ran KMBR. And Lee Hammer had a big impact on me. But the people behind the scenes, the producers at the time, the on-air talent, and, you know, the people in sales. I always connected with the salespeople. I always went door to door to try to make money and meet with them. And I was mentored, and a lot of people gave me a shot. If I didn't get that shot, Bruce Allen heard me in the middle of the night. True story. And he called the guy by the name of Andrew Ashwood, who I wrote my book, The Handoff, about. And he said, Andrew, who's this guy taking all the Raider calls? And that was when I was on Sports Fan. And my buddy Andrew said, oh, my God, that's JT. I have him on in San Diego. I mean, excuse me, in San Antonio in Miami. And he goes, well, should I hire him? And he goes, yeah, just hire him. He'll be great. And then Bruce calls Tony Salvador and Tony has to approve it. And the next thing you know, I just meet at the time my girlfriend, who turns out to be my fiance and wife and mother of my two kids. And she looks at me and says, you're gone. You're leaving me here. And I said, no, I'm not leaving you. I can't turn this job down. I'm getting hired by KMBR locally. And I'm going to do my national show and I'm getting hired by the Oakland Raiders to do and post game. I have to walk through this door. And that's one of the connections we'll make in this conversation. You've been really good at it and you're going through it now. When one door closes, a bigger one opens pretty much all the time. But you don't see it at that point. There's chaos and there's things being thrown through the door and there's a lot of noise in the background. At that stage of my life, I met the love of my life. I really would have turned something down to stay with her. But she was like, you got to do this. We'll make it work. And the next thing you know, I'm living at Crystal Tower because a gal named Michelle Martin says, we're going to put you right looking over the wharf and you're going to be in the heart of North Beach and you're going to live there for six months to a year. And it changed everything for me. And I'm very grateful to say that to everybody not only your bay area listeners but your national listeners because i took the opportunity to walk through that door
0: and i'll tell you if you didn't get to work for tony salvador for a minute in your career it's like you never you never went to las vegas when it was run by the mob Like, (laughs) like tony salvador presided over an era of radio that you and i both know is is long gone and will never be seen again
1: Oh, absolutely. I'll give you one more on that with Bob Agnew, who was underneath him as the program director. When I started at Sports Fan Radio Network, I I left a lucrative job as a stockbroker at Merrill Lynch. So I left a six-figure job for much less money to rebuild it and try to do it again. And and during the day, I had nothing to do when I wasn't on the radio. So I would cold call program directors because I was on the stations. And I got Bob Agnew on the phone. I'm like, hey, Bob, I'm your overnight guy. JT is like, yeah, what do you want? I'm like, no, no, I'm just introducing myself because that's what I did With a lot bigger guys in the world than Bob Agnew. Right. Stocks and bonds, a lot bigger than Bob at the time. And all of a sudden, the next day, I get a phone call from my boss and he says, I just got a call from Bob Agnew. What the hell are you doing calling him? I go, nothing. I called to introduce myself. What am I not allowed to do that? And they're like, no, you got to run that by us first. I'm like, (laughs) oh, okay. That's the type of business I'm getting. And Bob turned out to be great. He was great to me and Tony was great. But, you know, it was fun to be on in the 90s. In San Francisco, there was no 95-7 the game. There was just 10.50 launching, mostly syndicated. And there was KMBR, which was the biggest station out there. And, you know, you knew a lot of people were listening. Wherever you went to a Giant game, a Niner game, a Warrior game, you just felt like the audience was completely connected. And I always valued that. I treated it as my biggest market, like EEI in Boston or the ticket in Dallas. Whenever I got on a radio station, I knew it was going to be big. And it doesn't get much bigger than San Francisco.
0: And you've been in Vegas for, what, 20? Is it 25 years almost now?
1: Yeah, it's another uh, weird thing that I think has not helped me with some of of the fans who might be watching this because no one knew I lived in Vegas the whole time. See, the weirdest part of this whole thing, I was commuting for 17 years to Oakland twice a week on Tuesdays to do Behind the Shield, their TV show, and then on game day. So you want to talk, that's when you can get on a Southwest flight and you knew it was going to be there. You knew it was going to be on time. So I was commuting back and forth because after my, my son was born, right before my oldest son was born, uh, my wife, we wanted to have the baby in Vegas because of her doctors and all of that. And we came to Vegas and I didn't tell anybody I was leaving San Francisco. That's something I don't regret, but that was a balls out move. I just showed up in Vegas and was, you know, broadcasting back up to there. And it was a nice run. And then we just settled in again in Vegas. But right when I got to Vegas and settled in, I got the big phone call to go to Fox, where I worked at Fox Sports Radio for 17 and a half years. And I moved to LA for nine to 10 years. So from about 2001 to the end of 2009, I was with Fox Sports Radio in Sherman Oaks in LA.
0: But you had your, your base in Vegas. And then ironically, you know, the Oakland Raiders famously, I don't know if you've heard this, they moved to Las Vegas (laughs) and and it just so happened to the team that you used to get on an airplane to work with and around now came to the city that you live in. And it's just, it's, it's, again, it's amazing the way it all was happenstance random acts when it was actually happening. But you look back at it, it looks like this, this grand puzzle that you had planned for many, many years, but it all just sort of happened.
1: Yeah, it's funny you say that because if you look at how the Raiders ended up getting here, which, again, I could write a book on it, which I wouldn't because I don't want to offend even more people, but the (laughs) fact that the the Raiders were never on the map, as in zero with Mark Davis, even though Al Davis loved Vegas, had his big birthday party every year here. And then when it looked like, with the help of Carmen Policy and the Chargers, that they were going to move to Carson, California. Damon, let this sink in for a second. The Carson deal was a done deal. It wasn't in conversation. It was done. They had the votes, and then Jerry went back in because he talked to Cronkie and said, wait a second, who, has, who can do this now? No one other than Jerry. And he went back into the vote and said, no, we got the guy who's going to pay for all of it. We don't need, we don't need two teams. He's going to do it all. Turned out to be a very good move for the Rams. And so far in L.A., Mark Davis had the famous press conference, and he said the Raiders aren't used to coming in third. And he was really dignified. And got on a plane, not a private jet, got on a plane and went back to Oakland and started negotiating again. And that's what happened with Splintered with the A's, which we're talking about now in the Raiders, is as they were negotiating, supposedly in good faith, the A's went behind their back and did that 10-year lease. And then Mark gets a call from Napoleon McCallum, former running back, and says, why don't you come to Vegas? I want you to meet a guy named Sheldon Adelson, one of the richest men in the world. And all of a sudden, on a napkin, and starting to look at this, the Raiders are born in Vegas, and I'm in Vegas the whole time. And I never expected them to get here, never, never wanted them to leave Oakland, and now they went from I don't know 29th, 30th in revenue to top three, and they have a beautiful stadium. We got the Super Bowl this year, like the Raiders or not. You don't have to be a Raider fan here in this conversation, but now we have the Super Bowl. We're going to have the Final Four in basketball, the playoff games and fights and all of this. So it's just an incredible story how it all went from Oakland to Carson to Oakland to Vegas.
0: So it is an amazing story. And that sort of brings us up to one of the biggest questions that I had for you. And one of the reasons why I, I really wanted us to get together and have a conversation, because once again, Oakland fans are looking at the prospect of one of their beloved hometown teams moving to Las Vegas with everything we've heard about the A's. And I don't want to get into any element of local politics or Oakland or how they might have may or may not have screwed it up. I know that the mayor flew up to Seattle to talk to Rob Manfred just this past weekend and basically said we've made a good faith effort. I don't want to talk about that at all. I just want to ask you from someone who lives in Las Vegas and is, is tied into the sports conversation of sports fans in Las Vegas, not gamblers, but actual local living Las Vegas off the strip residents. Is there any clamoring for the Oakland A's to get to Vegas?
1: None. I mean, it's, it's less than lukewarm because here's the issue. I mean, the A's have been a proud franchise and had their great moments and they never had to come here. Mark Davis was already gone. Mark Davis already came here. And the Warriors went to the Chase Center in San Francisco. So this should have been a very easy deal to happen with no one else in the marketplace. Our AAA team, the AAA team of of the A's, the Aviators, outdraw the Oakland Athletics. So no one cares about the A's coming here except all the politicians here. And the businessmen and women who love to do deals, Damon, this is what no one's prepared to write about in the Bay Area or mostly talk about on their radio shows because they just don't know the story. So the A's, why would the A's come now and try to rip off and copy Mark Davis's blueprint when they were negotiating behind Mark Davis's back and trying to screw the Raiders in Oakland? And that's my perspective of it if others have a different one. So everybody's out of the marketplace. So you can have the Coliseum. I never believed they were going to do anything at Howard Terminal. Give me a break. A port. That, like, yeah, they're going to do a $10 billion deal. But they could have did any deal there. And I know you don't want to get into politics, but the worst politicians in sports history are in the East Bay. No slight to San Francisco. They get deals done. Oakland in the East Bay, where the crow flies 20 minutes to Oracle, Facebook, Apple where trillions of dollars are, not billions, and no one can put a deal together there because the politicians are so nasty and they're so corrupt and they've been so bad behind the scenes that no one wants to negotiate with them. You could have Facebook buy the A's. Oracle, Mr. Ellison can buy it. Google, one of the partners there. This was left perfectly for them. Coliseum and BART, if you blew into the smoke screen of Howard Terminal, Dave Cavill played it completely wrong. He's a carnival barker. He just got loud and look at me, look at all my selfies. And then as you've been talking about on your show, John Fisher, who's got plenty of money in the world, uh, he handled this poorly too. So we're smart now here in Vegas. Everybody's looking at the A's going, yeah, we'll take you. you know, we'll take you. We'll help you build the stadium. And it'll take some time. But I think if the owner sells the team, which he can't in this process immediately, or the president resigns, which he should, for just handling this br- brutally, yeah, I think Vegas will look around and say, yeah, we- welcome, we- we'll- let's do some business here. But it's very lukewarm at this point in time. Not a lot of people care.
0: With Manfred talking all about expansion, mm-hmm. why wouldn't Vegas, which is 1,000% going to be a major league city and 1,000% going to be an, an NBA city you know, in, in the next 10, 15 years tops, why wouldn't they just wait for their... St- their fresh scratch out of the oven, born in Las Vegas baseball team, then taking on John Fisher and all the problems that come with him. Why not be patient for the right team instead of just running into the wrong team?
1: Great question. Simple answer. They're desperate. The A's need to come here. They cannot stay in oakland they could only stay in oakland i'm happy they had 27,000 at that protest whatever it was there are so many great oakland fans that call my shows every day i love oakland they they ruined the model fisher has ruined it so even if it was hey the a's are gonna stay you won't believe this everybody the n the mlb's canceling it the a's are gonna stay in oakland no stadium Already a lot of their fans Fisher would have out. to go.
0: I mean, that's just the, the the only way they could possibly stay is for Fisher to sell to a new owner that wants to keep them here. That would be the only path to staying in Oakland at this time.
1: Yeah, I, I would think so. And if they did stay in Oakland and they had a new owner, how many fans would they get out in a year or two? If the new owner put a lot of money in and was in the market for Otani, someone you're talking about a lot on your show, or went out with free agency, yeah, I think you can rebuild it. The one thing about Vegas and every other ballpark going forward is they're building smaller ballparks. There's no need for 50,000 baseball stadium. We got a Legion stadium, T-Mobile. We got everything out here. We don't need another 50,000. So you build a boutique, 32,000, 33,000 baseball stadium here in Vegas. You have to have a dome. You don't in Oakland. And they'll eventually get here if they do. But the mess that Fisher and Cavill put themselves into is Mark handled the transition of the Raiders to Vegas beautifully. You notice that the Raiders didn't play at Sam Boyd stadium. Okay. You notice that the Raiders didn't play in San Antonio for two years until they built the stadium. They threaded the needle and built this thing on time and on budget for 1.9 billion, which is not a lot on time. And now we have a jewel in the NFL, the East Bay politicians can't do that. So even if they stayed in Oakland and wanted to be at the Howard terminal or build on the Coliseum site, with the politicians and all the issues there, it would just be a mess. So they destroyed something that was so beautiful. And look, I wasn't a fan of Mount Davis for baseball. Okay, I go back to Day on the Green when there was no Mount Davis. But you could knock down the Coliseum, try to clean up Bart a little bit, clean up the area around there a little bit more. You got to. And then just build a small boutique Oakland A Stadium with some retail and maybe a couple of condos. And everyone would have been happy, but those politicians who get voted in and out of office every two to four years, Damon, the point I'm making, it was too bold for them. It was too big. They're complaining about roads and hospitals. You should, you're politicians. There's never been a sports team that moved that affected a road, a a, a, a hospital, or school district. It's all the boogeyman type of stuff. The Oakland A's should remain in Oakland, California. You know...
0: Mark Davis very well.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: How pissed is he that the A's got in the way of him getting a deal done in Oakland by Hooker or crook? You know, you, you said it would have taken a genie coming out of the bottle. Okay, so that happens. The genie is out of the bottle. How pissed off is Mark Davis that John Fisher stood in the way of him keeping the Raiders in Oakland for real? Or is he just sort of playing up to that very easy to grab onto talking point in, in the public right now?
1: Well, I think Mark uh, Mark is misunderstood by a lot of people who don't realize how sharp he is and what he saw with this vision that he's pulled off. Game, set, match in Vegas. Now he's just got to win, and he wants to win. But going back to Fisher, I, I can't answer how pissed off he was. He's been on record with what he thinks about the whole deal and what happened in Oakland. He wanted to negotiate back then with Mark Bedain, former president, everybody else in more good faith and try to work together as a team. What what your audience needs to understand about Mark Davis is Mark Davis. If he wanted to take all the money and be a multi-billionaire and sell the team at the high, he would do that. He doesn't want any of that. He just wants to live a great life, have fun. His mom's still alive, Carol Davis, and wants to win. It's part of the
0: family identity. Like that guy needs to put on the white tracksuit and walk around pregame to feel like himself.
1: Yeah. And he wears the white jacket and he's, he's out in public and he's with his fans. It's just for Mark. Now Mark is onto such bigger things. The aces won a championship. They're going to win again. He's got the Raiders and a transition of regimes. He's trying to win. And what Mark's trying to do is get this done. Right. And it's taken longer than he wanted it to, but he's still trying to make it right. But, Now what Mark's delivered to Vegas as a legacy play as an NFL owner is that when every the NFL owners are at their meetings now, whenever they go into a meeting now, they look completely differently at Mark Davis than they did 10 years ago or eight years ago. They're like, hey, you know, I don't get him, I don't know him. Now Mark goes into the room and says, "You're welcome. I did Vegas. I did Vegas." And now all the owners are seeing the cash, they're seeing the upside, they're seeing the streaming, they're seeing the gambling on a different side of that. So when I answer your question on the A's, if the A's end up coming here, I'll be sitting in the front row for the Yankee games. When the Yankees are here, I guarantee you I'll have the best three seats in the house for my, my two sons. If my wife wants to come, if they come here, it'll be good for business and the economy here. But man, the A's should have stayed in Oakland. Everybody left. It's their fertile ground and they don't know what to do with it.
0: JT. Are you going to have the same connections at the sphere? Because when fish comes oh. to town, baby, I, I need to be set up that thing. You want to talk about uh, even less need for another venue because of what is already existing. You don't need a baseball stadium on the strip because of the, all big concerts are either going to Allegiant stadium or T-Mobile, not the baseball stadium. And those Eight thousand, nine thousand—is that what the sphere sits? They're going 000. to this. That thing looks amazing.
1: Seventeen thousand. Is it seventeen thousand in the sphere? Wow! And as most of your audience knows, they just lit up the sphere. It's going to debut coming in September, end of September for U2. U2. Are you two. You two going to the show? U2? Are you going to any of the show? One of them. I'm not going to opening night, but I'm going to one of them early. And That's Harry it. Styles. That, what's what you'll love about this story? This is owned by James Dolan who I'm a Knicks fan, screws up the Knicks, screws up the Rangers, disaster. Now, I told you that Allegiant Stadium was built for $1.9 billion on budget. This building's $2 billion in overruns. In overruns. Right. Not the price of it, but it's going to be worth it. Because I took the tour about a month ago, and the only way I can describe it to you is if you see a concert in this venue you will never in your life want to see a concert anywhere unless you're outside of the festival. But if you go in anywhere and you see a concert at the sphere, you're going to look around and go, Damon, imagine sitting in your seat and Billy Joel, who's going to have the residencies playing and you can feel wind. The sound is in your ears and the seat and your seat will be able to move and you'll look around you and you'll be in the middle of times square. So imagine being immersed in the middle of a forest or being immersed on a planet or being somewhere in a city like San Francisco, and the performer in front of you and everything is going to be mind blowing. This is incredible. If fish comes here, which they will, like they do with the garden, they'll hang banners for fish at the sphere, and you'll be seeing many shows there hooked up by your boy JT. I can,
0: <laughs> I'm going to hold you to it, man. Yeah. So, uh, again, the amount of things that have connected us, mm-hmm. concerts, the love of live music. It goes on and on and on and on. And who would have ever thought? And I would take radio calls from Raiders fans who would say to Niners fans on the radio, talk about your trophies or whatever. You got Jimmy Garoppolo and that guy sucks. And now he is, well, first of all, Jimmy never sucked. But Raiders fans used to tease Niners fans that Garoppolo was theirs and now jimmy Garoppolo's a raider how about yeah, that the world yeah. is small is it not
1: yeah, it is really small and i'm really excited i've met jimmy a couple of times here he's been around uh, a very handsome and dapper man as you D- know D- all, all of the suburbs all of the suburbs the ladies are swooning over him
0: look at right it this from- way. jimmy jimmy's so handsome that every single person who meets him walks away going god damn that guy's handsome
1: <laughs> he, he is that guy and he's been immersed <laughs> with the raiders when the Raiders did the deal, when they brought him in, obviously it's public news. They wanted to have a procedure the, the the injury looked like it was pretty much cleaned up, but they wanted to look at one other thing. So he's been, he's been going through this process. I'm not a trainer or a doctor and I've seen him a couple of times recently walking around. He looks great. And as I've talked about it with you at Garoppolo, the Niners have had a better team easily when it comes to, you know, the roster than the Raiders, but Jimmy's won. Four playoff games. Jimmy's played in the Super Bowl. The overthrow in the Super Bowl defined his legacy because that could have been a Super Bowl win for him. And he's played really big at times in big games in Green Bay against Aaron Rodgers, even though he doesn't put up 300 yards. He's perfect for this franchise right now because we had to say goodbye to Derek Carr. Not we, the organization did. And it was a hard goodbye. Derek was a hell of a player. Played nine years for the team. Got to the playoffs twice. One time he broke his ankle, so he wasn't able to play in that game, and then he got him there two years ago, and the Raiders didn't win. So he had nine years. He didn't have many good defenses. He had some good offenses. And the new regime looked and said, we want to we go in a different direction. They have the right to do that. So McDaniels took one of his guys that I guess he trusts. You know, Tom Brady, rumors were real amongst the Raider Nation. He's available. Jimmy Garoppolo comes in. They draft a backup quarterback to come in here out of Purdue, who I know you're familiar with, and they're going to give it a go. And if Jimmy's healthy, let me just tell you Raider fans who are watching, Jimmy's going to break the huddle. He's going to look to the left and see Devontae Adams. And in the slot, he's going to have Jacoby Myers, who's unbelievable. Then he's going to have Hunter Renfro. And then outside Hunter Renfro, he's going to, or inside, going to have Michael Mayer, the new tight end out of Notre Dame. And then when he looks behind him, he's going to have the leading rusher in the NFL, Josh Jacobs. This offense is bleeping loaded if Garoppolo can stay healthy. And as you're a great sports talk, you know how difficult it is to host a radio show when fans are going, well, if he's not healthy, we're not going to win. I go, wait a second. People have surgeries or procedures to get back to 100%, not 90. So if Jimmy gets back to 100%, I think the Raiders are in really good hands. He's not going to be the weak point of this team. I can promise you that.
0: So he's a good leader. He's going to get hurt. It just always happens. I mean, it's look, it, it happens to just about everybody in the league. I mean, it feels like you've got to have a backup quarterback for at least two weeks because that's just the way the NFL spits guys out. What do you think of Derek Carr in New Orleans? Do you think he goes to the playoffs?
1: Yeah, I, I think Derek, and I, I think the world that Derek is a human being, knowing him, is the last guy to sit down with him in his last big interview when he signed his contract extension. I hosted the Derek Carr show on ninety-five-seven, the game. And please get back to that. And Derek's going to a situation where that whole division's a mess. You got Baker Mayfield in Tampa. Atlanta doesn't have any identity. Uh, so when you're looking at him, I think Derek could come in there and win games. Yeah, you know, I think he can win 9, 10, 11 games and he's going to win the division and if he does he can win a home playoff game and that'll be a lot easier. A
0: lot easier pickings in his division than the Raiders division. That's for sure. It feels like just tapping oh, out is. and waiting a couple of years for Mahomes and maybe even Herbert to get off the damn stage would it, it that it's a brutal division, man. Oh, <laughs> it really oh, is. Oh, well,
1: let me let me just stop you right there. Enough. You know, there's a lot of propaganda this time of year. Oh, you know, a couple of national radio hosts. I'm going to pick Denver to win the AFC. Really? How'd that work out the last three years? Denver's lost the last six out of seven to the Las Vegas Raiders, and the Las Vegas Raiders haven't been great. Okay, Justin Herbert splits with the Raiders and has put up some good games and lost to Derek Carr in the greatest regular season game I ever saw. So Herbert's great. He's better than Garoppolo, no doubt. So is Mahomes, and you could say Russell Wilson could have a reboot, but that division has been super tough, Damon, and as you know, until someone like Max Crosby with a new Tyree Wilson, lands on Mahomes and puts him to the ground with the sense of purpose. Mahomes has been tearing up this division because he's that good.
0: What do you think of McDaniels? What's, what's the biggest impression he's made on you as a head coach?
1: Well, as you know, I know I'm going to get a text or a tweet or some clown's going to say, well, he's a shill and he's going to say good things about him. Well, I, mean, I am. He's the only coach in the history of the NFL ever, dating back to leather helmets that have six Super Bowl rings. He called every one of Brady's plays. Now, before you say he had Brady, of course he did. He built all the plays for Brady. When Brady was down 28-3 to in the Super Bowl and they made halftime adjustments, it wasn't Bill Belichick. It was McDaniels with Brady. Brady's the greatest quarterback of all time. McDaniels was right next to him. But he struggles as a head coach. He struggled in Denver. He came here, took over a 10-win team that won six games because they had to deconstruct the roster. These guys come from the bleeping Patriots, man. They looked at the roster and said, might be good for what you think. Not where we're from with all these rings. So they deconstructed it. Now they're building it back. And he's got a lot to prove. I host his weekly television coaches show. He couldn't be more gracious. He's a servant when it comes to football. I had one coach tell me, a defensive coordinator on another team, said the smartest guy I've ever talked to. He's got that type of mind. But now he's got to show. With his guy, Jimmy Garoppolo, Devontae Adams, he's got the leading rusher. Now he's got to take that playbook to a next level and dig this team out of this hole. So I hope he does well. My livelihood, a lot of it depends on it. My happiness, how'd you (laughs) like to go to work every day? Talking to the Raider Nation if they don't win games, and I'm pulling for him. He's been great to me.
0: Oh, believe me, I talked an awful lot to Raider Nations when they weren't winning games. And that's that's a long show to go through. Um you know, John Gruden, obviously, is someone that you develop quite a personal relationship yeah. with, too. And his name, a lot for rightfully so reasons, got a lot of mud on it with some inglorious emails and texts. And I will also say there's a whole bunch of inglorious emails and texts that people have sent throughout their lives that they never wanted on the front page of the New York Times. So John is not particularly special. But, boy, did he get that scarlet letter of un untouchable basically put on him by the scandal that took him down what is gruden doing these is, is he is he kicking it around vegas did he move back to california Do, what, what is john gruden even doing besides handling a lawsuit against the the nfl
1: yeah he's in the lab he's working his ass off and he worked with new orleans this mini camp he came in and worked with new orleans with Derek carr because Dennis Allen brought him in to consult on the quarterback and the offense there. He works with Carson Wentz. He's been trying to get him back. John Gruden's ready to pounce and come back again. There's no debate on that. Uh, John Gruden, I'll never condone what he said in the emails. He was saying things in the emails amongst friends when he wasn't a coach. Again, not condoning what he said, and he's paying the price for that. But John Gruden's one of the most important people I've ever met in my career and a hell of a football mind, and I think the next chapter for him is developing now. You saw the big ESPN piece that was released, and in that article, it really goes to show you that Gruden could be the only coach in NFL history, not Al Davis suing the league back in the day and winning, and that happening. But Gruden, if he can get the NFL and find out in discovery in his lawsuit, if he can win and keep it in court and not keep it in arbitration, There's a lot more to this story, Damon. You know, Damon, I've been known to exaggerate, but I've never lied to anyone. I could tell you there's not many people on God's green earth that knows this story better than I do. I know all the players. I know the players' friends. I know the players' wives. I know a lot of people, and I know this story inside and out. And I'm going to defer to see how it plays out in court. But John Gruden didn't need to go out that way. And what's disappointing to Mark Davis and the Raiders Uh, As you know, Brett Musburger came on my show with the famous line and said it was a hit. You know, it was a it was a hit. It was a hit. It was a mafia hit. And they took out Gruden and and they took out the Raiders on a year where they were five and two and things were grooving. And they took out Gruden and Gruden with the emails put himself in that situation. But it had what happened with Daniel Snyder and the Washington Commanders had a negative effect on the Las Vegas Raiders, a brand new franchise to a new market. That's very important to the NFL. So there's a lot more meat on the bone with this. I think it needs to play out in court. And I think that John Gruden will win in court. And then I think John Gruden will come back and be a head coach in the NFL.
0: So you and I, we've taken an awful lot of meat off the bone of radio in our careers. How much meat is left to even be eaten by guys can you imagine starting a broadcasting career right now what that must look like how daunting that must be thank god you and i are established enough to sort of be able to pivot and move around all the shrapnel of this industry but where do you see it going man i mean you you've seen every minute of sports talk radio over the last 30 25 years like i have and i don't think we've ever seen it you know, ticking towards a, an hour of crisis, quite, quite like the way it is. And I would have said that, by the way, had I had not been laid off from 95-7 the game. Had you not had a ridiculous experience with 95-7 the game, where you were basically brought on to be the guy that was yelled at over the Lakers, or excuse me, the Raiders moved to Las Vegas, and that was a disaster by a, a, a program director who didn't know what he was doing, and, you know, you kind of caught a lot of shrapnel on that. Mm-hmm. You can't be in radio these days without catching a lot of shrapnel yeah. these days. It's just, it's brutal out there. Where do you think this industry is going? Yeah. I know that you love your children enough to never direct them into a radio career like I do.
1: Well, let me touch on 95.7, the game first. I was asked at a private Raider event if I would come up and do five days a week uh, for a year and, I thought it was great. I thought it was some of the best radio I've ever done because Durant was there, Steph, they were winning championships. So I'd show up. I was doing two hours a day from Vegas and five days a week I'm staying at the W, right? And I'm having drinks with you. Life's pretty good. I get along with everybody in that lineup, Joe Fortenball, Lorenzo Neal, Dibbs, everybody there. Everything's pretty good. And then all of a sudden, about ten months <laughs> into the deal, they say, We don't want you to talk Raiders. I said, What? They said, Oh no, uh, we just kind of like you to pivot and not talk as much Raiders. And I'm that's true. Like, this is the Raiders' flagship. It wasn't a, It's a flagship station of the Raiders. You hired me to talk about the Raiders, and they were really blaming me for the Raiders potentially moving to Vegas because I'm in Vegas. And I go, you're smarter than this, everybody involved. So when that deal ended, it paid me enough in 11 months to pay for one of my kids to go to a great college for four years. So it was a great experience for me. I got along and made a lot of friends, and I thought I did some really good radio there, but... That chapter for me was very alarming because I did catch a lot of shrapnel that I shouldn't. I went in every day. I talked Warriors. I talked 49ers, Raiders, did good radio shows, put on better guests than they've ever had in the history of that station, maybe other than your show. And everything kind of went well. So I'm good on that. Those listeners still follow me on my stream. So I appreciate that. And then the future radio, the platforms I'm on locally in Vegas and on Mad Dog Sirius XM and filling in for Rome or doing this with you. I'm optimistic that they're going to figure it out. ESPN's move to get rid of a lot of good radio people and just wipe them off planet earth without them having another job. That just happened. That was a little bit alarming here, but it's the job of the young program directors. And most of them who are young and are program directors never hosted a fucking radio show in their life. So they have no idea what they're doing. They're going to have to pivot and get us through social media, streaming threads, Twitter, Facebook, Radio, advertising, where a lot of these companies are almost out of business. If you look at their stock price, it's an alarming time. But I always believe good talent will win. We've had the same agent for a long, long time. And they used to tell me all the time, keep the seat. And I would tell you that. And I think what's happening, you have a new seat now. I have different seats for every young broadcaster. Fight for every shift you can get. Now I look at myself as a bartender. I have some reliable shifts where I know I'll be on noon to two every day. You might catch me four to seven. You might catch me nine to midnight. I'm just coming in and doing a shift whenever they ask me to do it, put it up for people to watch or see and hope for the next show the next day. So I'm optimistic that they're going to get it right. But we are going through one of those stock market crashes. Or if you're old enough to remember a couple of those real estate pullbacks where the strippers and the models who had four houses in Vegas <laughs> and come home and go, oh, my God, I just got a call. My interest rate, we're going through one of those in radio right now. And I think it'll, it's a cycle we'll get through.
0: Man, I hope you're right. I mean, it feels like we're at the convergence of new technology, new ways to do things, new business models. And it's just a whole bunch of car crashes in the intersection. But you're right. Everyone pulls through it. Whatever we identify as, this is the worst time ever. It eh, probably isn't the worst time ever, and it'll all go by, and it'll all pass. And man, I, I just know one thing: that no matter what I go through, you are someone who I am going to lean on for advice and friendship. And and this is the this is the fastest 45 minutes of my entire day, right here, man. This was. Th- th- we need to do this more often. We need Be to sure. get out of our, oh, let's tell everyone all the history in between us and just just chop it up about sports the next time we do this, man. But it was great catching up. It was great catching up everyone as to how well in, you and I know each other. And uh, I just think you're, you're one of the best, man. You're, you're one of the best in the business. And beyond that, you're one of the best guys I've ever met beyond anyone's business. You're just good people all the way through and
1: through, man. So thanks for, for hopping on to Plouse. Thanks for promoting it. Thanks for being a part of it, brother. Let's do more. Best to your beautiful wife and your sons and your family and uh, your great talent, and talent always wins. And this is the best new chapter of your career happening, and I can't wait to see what happens next. That's my man right there.